This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in a special 420 episode, we sit down to talk about the relationship between weed and communism. I'm Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald, also from the Communist League in Tampa. Rosa. Uh, Rosa, coming in from Weedland. Weedsylvania? Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Great. And Lexi. What up? Lexi from Emancipation. Uh, to each according to their weed. <laughs> okay, so... Um... What are we talking about, Donald? Um, I was talking about um, the role of teetotaling in the early left and kind of the prohibitionist connection to the left, and how I, I, I think it's um, it's kind of interesting for like uh, how you have these like radical leftists, but they also like embrace this really strong sobriety culture. And it wasn't just in like the U.S. That's like me, the example I'm probably most familiar with. But I understand like the Austrian social democracy. Like, their cultural organizations promoted this kind of culture of, like, sports and sobriety and, like, keeping your body very, like, healthy and, like, not indulging in drugs. But then there's another side of communism, which is, like, the crazy Germans who would get together in beer halls and get smashed and, like, argue about, like, Marxism. So, like, I don't know, I'm not trying to say that, like, you know, some right-wingers will actually, like, talk about, oh, the left back in the day, they wanted to ban alcohol, like. They've always been totalitarians, you know, or whatever. But, like, there was obviously a side of the left that wasn't like that, you know. Like, there's a good book called, um, what's it? Beer and Revolution, I think. And it's about, um, German immigrants, often, like, kind of like a mix of Marxist and anarchist and ideology. And, like, this kind of beer hall culture that they developed. And it was, you know, it wasn't without its flaws, but it is interesting how you did have, like, this kind of, um beer hall communist culture but then you had like this prohibitionist culture within communism you know this idea that like we need to you know end all corrupting influences on humanity to make the perfect society and that can make like these kind of positions like attractive some people and it kind of makes sense right for the whole like tight butthole authoritarian communist wing um that is voluntaristically going to destroy all the corrupting influences from capitalist society right now here in this room with us, you know, like they're going to do it through personal will and through a political intervention into the social that is really like, that just has an iron will. Oh, it's a revolution from above as Robert C. Tucker would frame it. Yeah, like, I mean, you kind of see the same evolution. Like he called the uh, the rise of Stalinism from 1928 to, like, you know, 1953 as basically a revolution from above. Stalinism, okay, but there's two things I want to say here. One is that there is an organic uh, response in working-class societies to, you know, what, what would appear to be this scourge upon the population that was clearly exploiting their misery in order to peddle a product to them that they might not otherwise need. Um, on the other hand, 
This is a Leninist tradition. Bordiga famously had this position on drugs, and I don't think it was a common sense position on the left uh, until the new left that, uh, and you know, the acid communism days, um, that this wasn't a good idea. Well, even in the new left, like you had Maoist groups and Trotskyist groups who like, you know, a lot of them started out as student groups and like after kind of like the failure of the student movement, they decided to like proletarianize their groups and go to the working class and work in factories and try to become part of the working class. And a part of doing this, they do like, you know, they, they told their cadres that they had to stop smoking weed and like start drinking beer and cut their hair and stop listening to rock and roll music. But what's funny is that, like, you know, in the 70s, by that time, like, this kind of like, counterculture, like, was coming into the mainstream. So your ordinary worker in the factory was smoking weed and might have had long hair and was listening to rock music. So, like, they just ended up booking, like, a bunch of pretentious squares, if anything. So, like, and, and that's, you know, but you're right that this is, like, a, I think, but I think this tradition comes before Leninism. Because even before, like, you have like Stalinist regimes where like drug use is banned. Like you have like teetotalers in the left who do actually like have influence. So I think it comes from something more than just like Stalinism or Leninism or whatever you want to call it. Like, sure, sure, it has its antecedents in the sort of like Lasallian progressive kind of orthodox Marxist stuff. I, I can agree with that. But there's also that beer hall tradition. These two things are at odds. I think some of like this impulse too comes from because you know the people who end up in positions of leadership are really active in any kind of political movement are usually people who are interested in those kind of things above and beyond the ordinary person. And when you're like that and you're first like developing intellectually, you start like questioning like the world around you in a fundamental way that you probably feel like a lot of other people haven't. You're like, yeah, man, just partake of your bread and circuses and watch your football and drink your beer. You don't even know how this system's dicking you over. You know what I mean? And well, so it's, you know, you know, you know, didn't like, Noam Chomsky have a take where like he said like sports is just like simulated nationalism or something like that? Well, he's kind of right. Like I mean, pseudo national. Yeah, I mean, like but a, same thing. A football player wrote that and dropped out of the NFL. Like, I have personal experience <laughs> with this because, like, when I was in high school, I had friends who were like, you know, pretty class conscious. Actually, like, I knew like a really rich kid who was, you know, who had read Das Kapital, and he kind of like looked down on me for smoking weed and like listening to metal music because like he saw that as like plebeian culture and like. It's just like, like, you know, like you said, like bread and circuses. And it is true that like where I grew up, there was this tradition of like just stupid stoner burnouts who like lived off their parents like and just like did like pills and smoked weed all day. And like they really hated that culture. But like at the same time, it did kind of you can see how, yeah, just like like this kind of like hatred of drugs can come from like seeing like actual people getting fucked over by drugs is what I'm saying. Like, obviously, I'm, you know, like, I saw a lot of people, I saw a lot of people get fucked over by opioids, like, during, like, the, you know, there's this kind of, like, this five-year period, almost, where, like, everyone, almost, I just knew so many people who were addicted to opioids, and it seemed to be everywhere I went, and, yeah, so it seems like there is a lot of real damage that drugs cause, and I think the left's knee-jerk reaction 
is to say we need to ban drugs and we need to take on our local drug dealers. Like I'm, that's not I'm. This is that's like what the Maoists are saying. Like, but if you think about it, like if you're organizing in these like you know proletarian and lumpen proletarian communities that are really savaged by drugs, and like it, it, you can see why leftists would be like, we need to like what we need to do is like fight against this drug culture, so proletarians will become more respectable. And I mean. Like, with prohibition, like, a lot of, like, feminists saw, like, alcohol as contributing to male oppression because, you know, the husbands would come home after work and get drunk and beat their wives. And so it was seen as almost a feminist cause to, like, you know, keep alcohol out of circulation because so, it, you know, it, empower it basically led to male violence. And so, like, you know, there is a, a rational kernel to the anti-drug impulse and leftism. So what you said about you said something I'm about not like extremely pro drug by the way. I'm just trying to you know understand like the issue. So here's a question I was yeah, going to pose but... to the group in response to like the um lumpen proletariat thing. Uh, you know, I started decimating these lumpen communities because that's the the big one that you hear about is like heroin going into like the black ghettos, like you know, as, right as right after kind of the crest of like civil rights and black power. Yeah, heroin and crack. Yeah. Yeah. This. Yeah. I think. Yeah. First heroin, then crack, and then like. So, to what extent uh, do do the people on this this episode, this panel, this show, who, to what extent do we believe that the CIA was responsible for that? I mean, the CIA, <laughs> the CIA was definitely funneling drugs into those neighborhoods, but it's not like they weren't there before. And so, I think you have to look at the actual social contradiction of those movements and look at, you know. It's not just because of the CIA and the FBI and the, the state cracking down on these movements that they failed. The reason that they were able to be cracked down and destroyed is it's it's also internal factors. It's not just external factors. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say, though, I do, I, I, do, I, 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 I believe it. I believe that they did flood, that they did, like, I believe oh, yeah, the CIA was doing I, that and it was on purpose. I think that was, I think yeah, that's real. I, I think there's enough evidence out there that it seems yeah, it's, pretty it's, it's not enough evidence where it's no longer a conspiracy crankery. But no, no, no. the problem is when you blame that as, like, the main cause of why these movements failed and not look at, you know, the social conditions of the time and how deindustrialization was happening and how there was kind of, like, this um, black nationalism really didn't develop on the goods that it promised. And there was, like, this kind of reversion to petty bourgeois cultural nationalism in a lot of circles. And you saw ideas of black capitalism being also imported into these like communities. Actually, like, well, Black Awakening in Capitalist America is a really good book for documenting this. So the drugs were a factor, but I think there's like oh there are other factors at play that well. Were, and I, I wasn't trying to suggest like a monocausal narrative here. I was just saying like I do I do definitely think there was some engineering behind that to a certain extent. Well, I mean, and that's, and that's not just the weed talking man. Sorry. These populations are going to be lumpenized either way because of, you know, the rising organic composition of capitalism and deindustrialization and the fact that, like, all these factory jobs in Detroit were about to be gone. So, like, either way, you would have had a section of the working class be lumpenized. And, like, the CIA was probably just, like, meeting the demand that was there for drugs. Like, I feel like people think, like, drugs, like, weren't around until the 60s. But like people have been using drugs for so long, it's ridiculous. Like it's yeah, but drugs, drugs are the extreme example of a product creating its own demand. Like, yes, people have terrible things in their lives that they need to escape from one way or another. Indeed, but 
especially physically addictive drugs, not to mention psychologically addictive drugs, but specifically physically addictive drugs really do drive an, something extra. And I guess the way that I could be most sympathetic to this teetotaling sort of tendency in leftism is to think about it in the context of, for instance, the opium wars in China or alcohol with indigenous people on the American continents. Like those are two instances where it does really have this, I mean, you could call it petty bourgeois, but it also has this resonance with the national communities that are being taken advantage of. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it more goes back to, like, the way these, like, it is sort of an escape, though, at the same time. Like, there was this, like, famous experiment done with rats where they basically, like, uh, they were, like, given drugs and they basically ended up, like, just killing themselves through, like, drug use. But then they, like, had... They did the experiment again, but this time they had them in like an op more open environment because the first time they had them in just stale cages and the choice was between like water and like heroin or something. And when they had them in like more open cages with stuff to do like little environments, you know, like green stuff, grass and things like that, the rats weren't getting addicted. And that's yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. Like, um, like I was gonna say that, like, basically, I see drugs as like an inevitable result of like capitalism and its effect on mental health, because there's a lot of studies about mental health that show well, like it's it's really like even if it is like chemically caused there's still like societal factors that are causing these chemical imbalances and it really starts from the psychology of like the family and the structuring of the family where you see like the causes of um what we see as psychological disorders and so really in the end it's a social problem and it's because of capitalist atomization and the thing is because we have no choice but to live in capitalism. We can't just overthrow it and all of a sudden have a non-alienated society where we don't feel the need to do drugs or whatever, like or the need to feel even far. I'm talking about just even pharmaceuticals that are prescribed to us. Like I see these as basically like necessities that people sometimes have to do use just to basically meet the needs of capitalism. I think like amphetamine is the best example. Like so many people probably can only be as productive as they are because of amphetamine usage, you know, like it's, it's not like, a, you know, it's not just like a, a joke that, you know, truck drivers use crystal meth, like, you know, like there are like requirements imposed on us by society, but it's also a society that, you know, makes us mentally ill and is sometimes incapable of meeting those requirements. And so like we're forced to kind of take the route of better living through chemistry. And I mean, I'm, I may be kind of universalizing my experiences here because I do take pharmaceutical drugs, but... There are certain kinds of mental illnesses that are not socially generated. Like it's, it would be hard to differentiate which one is which, but I think it's important to put that out there. That, that's yeah. an asterisk. The other asterisk is that all cultures have drugs. Just like as many cultures have music, have some kind of drug. 
And it's often incorporated into a religious ritual. It's often a social bonding exercise that even outsiders can take part in in order to be drawn into the in-group. Drugs themselves aren't the problem. I think the best example is the difference between the coca leaf and cocaine. Um, Drug use is part of human life. It's never going to go away. Addiction is the social problem. And I think even if you don't like the consumerist critique, you know, that liberals often go off on, uh, the, the cash value of something like society of the spectacle, right? Or the, the idea of, you know, the media being as insidious as it is, is that it structures all of existence like addiction. It almost, it gets you addicted to all these different things that, and everything's a treadmill. Nothing really takes you anywhere. Uh, I know this is a petty bourgeois point or something, but you know, philosophy starts with the critique of hedonism. There's a, there's a greater good in life. Oh, you're so fucking on point right now. That's so fucking true. Like it's, uh, yeah. It, I mean, like, it, you're right. Like addiction is like the social problem, and, but okay. There's another thing too. Is that like it's this whole idea of like drugs. Like, like drugs like describes a lot of different things. You know what I mean? And things that I don't think it'll in, in many important ways are really commensurate. <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. so, or like, um, like why isn't why doesn't beer fit, like why doesn't beer fit in drugs? Why doesn't cigarettes fit in drugs? You know, like it's just a completely I mean, arbitrary drugs. Like I don't know, I, I think it's ridiculous that they're not considered drugs. Like that's just idiocy on the. It's because of um, another thing I was going to point out was the a lack of scientific and rational approach towards drugs means that we have all these absurdities about drugs. Basically, it's just a bad category, you know. It's a like, it's a social category. It's what Nancy Reagan called drugs. It's the thing about like nominalism is that it's kind of inaccurate if you care about systematic analysis. But at the same time, like there are people who say weed isn't a drug because it's you know because it's not as hardcore as like other drugs, but it's definitely a drug. Marijuana like, is not a drug. No, I, I, it is a drug. THC and CBD and all those kind of hey, it's a plant that God gave us to fucking make TV cool. Like, <laughs> they are yeah. drugs. And like I feel like the people who try to argue, you know, for weed legalization on this, like oh, it's not really a drug. Like alcohol is like a drug, but weed really isn't, man, because it's not. It doesn't poison you, and it's like natural. It's like it's opium. It's medicine, it's man. A, it's medicine. You got to see how baked. Well, it has to be harvested by humans anyway, too. So it's not like you can just like go pick weed out of the fields, you know. I don't know. It's it's. I'm just saying, like, it, drugs, in my opinion, are any chemical that influences like your your. You can be completely off drugs and be completely sober, or you can be taking medication or using drugs that are you aren't medicated. And either way, you're putting chemicals into your body that are like for the purpose of affecting your neurochemistry. I think that is... You could could do that with food. Well, food, like, it's more so affecting, like, your vitamins. It's not as direct as, like, affecting your neurochemistry. You're not intending to, like, change the neurochemical balance in your brain for, like, a, you know, kind of psychological or effect. I mean, coffee and beer are kind of culinary. Like, wine, even, like, hard drinks, like... 
I know what you're saying, Donald, and there is. Like if I have a glass of wine at dinner, like there's a good chance that I'll like have like some kind of like fuck up like big time because of like other medications I'm on. And, like, but if I but if if I take something to deal with, I don't know psoriasis. That's a drug too, and it has nothing to do with my brain chemistry. Yeah, that too. I think Donald was speaking more about like uh, mind altering medication. Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying though, like the category of drugs is just is a shitty term, and yeah. you know we need more no terms. Question. That's no all question. I'm saying. I mean, whoever the, the whoever sorts this out, the Department of Terms, I don't know, needs to be fixed. <laughs> well, I think that the the thing is like we need to stop like talking about drugs as sort of this evil thing, and we need to like basically like look at drugs for what they are, study them, and have a scientific analysis of them, so we can actually be like, okay, like. Weed isn't the same as heroin. This doesn't mean that weed can have negative effects on your life and memory, but you can still, you know, it's 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 not as addictive and dangerous as like heroin, and like, and for example, oxycontin and like Xanax and stuff like that. Like when you're in high school, like kids are doing that shit, and like you have no idea what it is. You don't know that it's basically like heroin when it's oxycontin. But, like, kids are, like, giving it to you and you've been, like, you know, like, there's a lack of scientific education about drugs. Because maybe you smoked weed and realized, oh, this isn't that bad. This is just, like, you know, feeling weird for a couple of hours and, like, chilling out. And then, like, you know, you don't know jack shit about other drugs. So you, like, you know, end up, like, doing Oxycontin and then, like, ten years later you're, like, shooting up heroin. Okay, so, so like, there's, a, there's a lack of education in scientific discourse. Well, and what's what's also needed, I think maybe in just the general public discourse is to really change. Like, I think honestly, we need to stop looking at the idea of like curing addiction and reframe it in terms of how to make functional people. I think what's, I think what we really need to aim for socially is to have a lot more functional addicts. Well, the thing is like, yeah, you can be a dysfunctional person and be sober, but you can be a highly functional addict who uses drugs responsibly in order to basically function according to the norms of life. That's what I'm saying about like how capitalism kind of forces people to do drugs because it creates all these like pressures, you know, and so therefore like we basically have to, you know, resort to better living through chemistry. And so so is so what is it then? Maybe it's possible for like people to do that in a way that's not to like live according to capitalist form of assembly to just like have a more interesting life basically so what is the impulse you know for the for the bourgeoisie politically to keep um drugs illegal if it is possible to make people functional uh on them you know could could we could we have a system profitable in itself it's profitable in itself because you get cheap labor from prisons and that's okay. like a multi-million dollar industry because the government is propping it up also. And also, like, when the state seizes drug dealers, like, they get to basically, like, expropriate all those assets. So it goes straight to, like, the departments. Prison. It makes money off of it. I mean, there's a prison, you know, prison, aspect right. to it. I mean, and like, being able to pack your prisons. Yeah, with I think. Yeah. Also, if you really wanted to be, like, weirdly technical about it, you could describe it as, like, an like dealing with like the uh surplus labor army that exists like a rising surplus labor army it's a way it would be it, useful to persecute them for drug use and that sort of yeah. thing it can almost be yeah exactly it's almost like it can be used as a way to reproduce the surplus labor population to keep drugs around but to keep them illegal 
so that you know, it, it, I think that there's there's definitely a bourgeois like it's totally compatible with bourgeois rule. I think like marijuana being legalized, like yeah, that's compatible with bourgeois rule. But the thing is, like all the people in jail for weed are not being you know are not going to get out of jail, and that's really just you know kind of shows what a farce it is. Like this is more about putting people in jail than it is about protecting the public from drugs. And there's also a moral panic, like, aspect to it. Like, I think with ecstasy, for example, like, there was basically a moral panic about it, and they banned it without really knowing, like, what the actual effects of the drug were and how safe it actually was. And then, as a result, like, you created a black market full of, like, dirty, like, pills that, like, actually did kill people. Yeah. I mean, in the Soviet Union, they... They made uh, Gorbachev basically made this horrific mistake of banning alcohol, which created a black market that would and like just basically created the Russian mob and unintentionally sabotaged their own like budgets because a good chunk of like the revenue that was going to the Soviet government was throughout taxing alcohol. Oh man. Imagine they had like an alcohol Russian. problem. I mean, yeah. you know, the 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 Russians also tried to do prohibition, but it lasted shorter in Russia than it did in the U.S. Even under the Soviet Union. I mean, it's just obvious that it creates a black market that is more damaging the society than it does to not have a black market. Like, if the policymakers actually cared about the damage that drugs did to society, they would decriminalize all drugs and focus on, like, making, like, drug users either sober or functioning members of society, depending on their choice. Like, honestly, like, I think heroin addicts should just be prescribed, like, a certain amount of opiates and told, listen, like, if you can, you know, basically, like, if, if this, if, you know, if this is what it takes to keep you feeling good enough to function on a daily basis... And the fact you have to scour for drugs all day is what makes it, like, you know, impossible for you to, like, act as, you know, be, to be, like, a, a part of social society, basically. Like, hell, just give them some drugs. And maybe if they want to quit, they can. They can taper down. But in the end, like, I don't think you can force people to be sober. But what I think you can do is try to make drug addicts more functional and more useful, if that makes sense. And... I don't know. That kind of. I sounds... mean, yeah, there, there definitely is like a, there, there is definitely like a moral panic aspect of this because you get because there are people like Jeff Sessions, a lot of people who are in law enforcement who see drugs as like this alien thing that will basically make it because the deep conservative fear about humanity is that people are intrinsically lazy and that so it's like well why wouldn't everybody just sit around and get high all day if they could and so they there's this thing that comes along that makes that quote unquote makes people do that. And they're afraid that it's basically going to overrun the country, you know, and that, and especially because a lot of it is made in like Latin America and, you know, and other, it basically from other countries, they, you know, if it was allowed to be legal, like, you know, there'd probably be huge industries there, which would allow them to, you know, get out of the, from under the thumb of, you know, us, uh, Western hemisphere hegemony. And, uh, yeah. So there's like that aspect of it too, I think. I mean, I think the whole, like, 
the whole aspect, the fun, whole function of moral panics and capitalism is interesting because they do seem to have this function to shore up the authority of the church, shore up the authority of parents, shore up the authority of, like, media figures and whatnot, you know, these kind of, like, moralistic, like, figures that people look to. Um, and it, it also shores up the, the legitimacy of the state as well, especially when, like, experts, quote-unquote, get on behind them. And so, even if there really isn't this huge problem, a moral panic, what it does is it kind of, like, you know, it, it, it shores up the authority of these institutions. It might not be, like, even the capitalist state necessarily, but there's other institutions in social life that still, like, instill this authoritarian personality that people have and it kind of shores up the, author the authority of those positions like think about the satanic panic of the 1980s and like yeah. what a bunch of like constructed bullshit that was full of like people basically like being hypnotized into like false memories like just it was it was just such a it was the whole purpose of it was to shore up the authority of the church just like in a way like there's this moral panic about human trafficking which is obviously actually a problem, unlike the satanic panic, but they use it to shore up, like, you know, the illegality of sex work and try to basically, like, police sexuality and keep people from living off camming or whatever. Like, it's, it's, there's a uh, kind of like moral ideological aspect to that. It, it, it reproduces, like, capitalism to a certain extent. It's hard for me to parse out where the, this serves capital ends and we want to repress this good time because you know for <laughs> weird butthole twitch reasons yeah don't have much well, it's saying it's well, yeah and and like, like it like the patriarch in the church and stuff like that it's other forms of authority in society that aren't like your boss like i don't think only capitalism is the problem yeah, and some of this is just like I'm like I wonder what if you could do a study and to show like what are the net effects in terms of capital accumulation of having you know this massive private prison industry having this thing just to, to discipline the working class um, by and soak up surplus populations versus what the revenue would stand to be if drugs were just legal and you had this whole new market right. Um, you could probably, I, I'm guessing, my instinct is to say that if you did a study, you could probably prove that having drugs be decriminalized would be a net effect positive, like on GDP or whatever, right? Um, but I think the reason that that doesn't happen is just because there's, you know, the basic inertia of the groups that exist, that are already, in, that are groups that are currently in power, don't have any serious contenders against them politically. And so they're just going to basically try and keep the system as it stands going as long as it's going because they are, they're already at the top of the pile. And if things are stable, then they get to stay there. I often think of the role of social dysfunction in an alienated society. Like, and again, this is stuff that has been around with humanity for a while, even in, if not in these particular capitalist frustrated forms. But I do wonder, for instance, when, if we believe the CIA spread drugs to destroy black nationalist groups and leftist groups, um, then, you know, there's this functional way that addiction can create people that are desperate. If you make poor people desperate, like some of them will steal shit. Like yes, that this this is all stuff that breaks social solidarity. 
Yes. Exactly. The more people are scraping by to exist, and the more that their actual income, if they have any, just makes it impossible for them to reproduce, the more they're scraping by, the more likely they're going to be parasitic upon other proletarians. It's going to break down solidarity, and it's it lumpenizes people in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And, I remember this. This was a, this was a legitimate like organizing problem during Occupy. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, like people would like steal funds if they, you know, if they were addicts, and you know, they were generally like extremely unreliable people who would probably would fold to the cops, basically. If well, it, it was a problem in the Russian Revolution too. You had all kind of like lumpen opportunists like sign up to join the Bolshevik Party and just use their positions to like make their own little fiefdoms. And yeah. so, what was I getting at, basically? Well, and well, and this is the thing too. Another example, um, you know, during the height of the sort of anti-austerity struggles and the crisis of like state in Greece, you know, there there were you know like anarcho there were like anarchists and yeah yeah I was gonna that, bring it up at one point. yeah that ha- that had control of like sections of cities and they basically had a strong no drugs rule because if anybody came there and was like shooting up, those people were extremely unreliable and dangerous, and mm-hmm. you know undermined the sort of tight solidarity and unwillingness to work with the police that made those kind of spaces like effective and possible yeah and so. i definitely see how occupy like really showed that in action because it's like i don't yeah. know sorry what are you going to say i mean i think the category of lumpen is kind of problematic because it, it doesn't really like it's kind of co- like in Marx, it's like you have the category of the labor army, which basically implies that all these unemployed people are, are like reserve proles, so they would be proletarian. But you also have this concept of the lumpen prole, which is not proletarian and are outside due to their criminality. But it's like, okay, so you have these permanently unemployed in the labor reserve army who basically end up going towards criminality anyways so you have this problem where you have these two categories that are contradictory to each other you see what i'm saying i would say that, that like you have the entire surplus population and they not they're not lumping just by being surplus population but i'm saying like when workers start to actually, like, you know, rob their neighbors and, you know, participate in gang killings and, you know, sell drugs to um, exploit other drug addicts and, you know, try to become a drug kingpin or become, like, a pimp and, like, exploit sex workers, like, these workers, like, become, like, you know, they reproduce themselves by harming other workers and it breaks down social solidarity. So I do think that, like, lumpenization is like a real existing phenomena no i mean i can get like i remember um i could share some like uh uh, activist drug scene stories if if you guys want yeah go for it i think that's appropriate yeah okay i know i know you dealt with this a lot jake because you were involved in occupy and like i was hardly involved and i saw tons of it so i saw so much how like drug addicts and people like just like tore it up yeah. So like one low point, I remember like giving like a hundred dollars to two pillheads to get the fuck out of town because <laughs> they were just like a complete like they were just complete leeches and just like not doing anything and basically like squatting at the camp and causing drama. So and... basically, I'll give you one hundred dollars to fuck off. Yes. <laughs> um. So that was one thing. Yeah. That was that was that was one time that had. But the other thing was there was a person who was like a. 
kind of, like they would always go back and forth from like New York occupied to Tampa occupy. And they were kind of like, oh, I'm a big shit activist. Look at me. I was involved with the uh, act up campaign back in the day, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they started like a uh, Chelsea Manning support group or whatever and raised a bunch of money. And at one point even uh, went on the radio and read a letter like a thank you from Chelsea. Right. And in tears, this is back when still in prison. Um, the letter turned out to be fake. And their organizing tried to be fake, and they used the money that they raised to buy crank. <laughs> that's, my, that's one of my favorite Tampa left stories. Um, yeah. And they put all this money for Chelsea Manning and then decided to just like buy meth and get high off it. And like, I, I have no problem believing that because I know who these people are. So, like, yeah. But anyway, like. Yeah, I think you're demonstrating, you know, what is a real existing problem and, like, when you actually try to organize people. And, like, you know, in Tampa Solidarity Network, a lot of people who contact us are just insane and don't actually, like, understand what's going on. So it's it, that can become, like, an issue as well. But uh, it's, 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 it's something that proletarians had to deal with. And I think, like, one of the um, things that the Black Panthers tried to do was, you know, provide literacy classes and free, you know, you know the classic, you know, like how anarchos are all into that stuff, like all that stuff that they did in a way. But I think they've, you know, they weren't like, oh, we're making socialism within, like, capitalism. They saw it as, like, we're, like, you know, helping lumpens basically, like, become, like, members of society who can be politicized. Because when you're literally scraping by to survive, like you're just not that likely to become a radical. Like, there's this concept that, like, there's going to be a crisis and we're just going to be so poor that they have no choice but to be communist. But I really think, like, in those situations, right-wing demagogues can more easily, like, take control. Because when you're just scraping by to survive, like, it's really hard for people to build those bonds of class solidarity. Yeah, and the only people who have class solidarity are petty bourgeois who want to fucking kill all the lumpen. I mean, that's a big problem is, like, well, and I, I, when I say lumpen, like, I'm not trying to use it even as a moral category so much. Like, I guess in some cases it can be, but it's, it's basically a, an existing phenomena within, like, the surplus, like, proletariat, I think. And the Black Panthers, like, concretely did, like, deal with it and try to find ways to organize the lumpen, and they did try to find ways to, like, combat, like, the real conditions that came with that. And I think that's one thing we can learn from them, actually, despite, you know, we may disagree with their ideology. So I got one piece of news that might be relevant to what we're talking about tonight. Some of you might have saw this on Facebook. Um, apparently, Trump is uh, taking, a, taking a new line on weed. He basically, he, uh-huh. he, you know, he claims he supports, he claimed, uh, at least when talking to someone, that he supports states' rights for legal marijuana. Um, I, I have an art. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up the article here. I'll just maybe re- just read this. This is from New York Daily News. Uh, it's cheeky, cheeky writing here. President Trump is going green, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions is probably seeing red. Uh, Trump announced Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Trump announced Wednesday that he will back congressional efforts to protect states' rights to legal marijuana, according to a Republican senator. Uh, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner said Trump promised over the phone in a that a memo sessions issued last year won't affect his home state. The memo sought to reverse Obama-era policies on recreational pot and hinted at a federal crackdown. 
Uh, late Wednesday, I received a com uh, commitment from the president that the Department of Justice's recession of the coal memo will not impact Colorado's legal marijuana industry. Furthermore, President Trump has assured me that he will support a federalism-based legislative solution to fix the state's rights issue once and for all. Um, Gardner, whose state legalized recreational marijuana in 2014, threatened to block all Justice Department nominees after Jeff Sessions' January memo. In light of Trump's phone call, the senator said he had a change of heart. So... It's possible here Trump might just be bullshitting this guy to get him to stop blocking his appointments. Um, but, I mean, you know, I think it, 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 I mean, it would be a smart move for Trump, frankly. Bread and circuses, man. Bread and circuses. We're all high. We won't question Trump, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. Take into account. Take this into account, man. I'm, I'm not the conspiracy theorist. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, Trump has no coherent ideology, so he'll say whatever, like, is, like, cool at the moment. Like, yeah. If I, I was gonna like really like my what I have to say to that is like I just hate how much this has become like a state's rights issue. Yeah. Why aren't we like fighting for drugs to be legal in the entire country and not make it this weird like patchwork of states with different weird drug laws? Like it just shows how stupid federalism is. Like in federalism, as in the sense of like having all these different states and then having a federal government, then the governments are separate. Like. It should just be municipal governments and then like a world communal council that's directly elected. Like all this, like some, all this, like states' rights bullshit, like needs to stop. But there is a there is an interesting uh, transformation from qua quantity to quality that happens um, when a bunch of states start falling. I think the, the example that comes to mind is gay marriage. Um, like war. Probably the best one. <laughs> well, I mean that that's uh, it's, it's a little different, but let's put it this way: that the whole states' rights thing, like, had a like. First of all, the slogan of states' rights is is in America like emblematic of all the wrong things about libertarianism in the United States. Because when I think of states' rights, I think I do think of the Civil War. Um, but and the civil rights movement. Basically, it was a dog whistle for, you know, fuck black people. It's right. like, let us keep segregation. I mean, neo-confederates well, neo use it as a dog whistle. This issue that Donald it's raised... still used as a dog whistle, for the most part. But this even is... beyond that, there's, like, political problems with it. Like, just in terms of, like, republicanism. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Also... Also, I, I don't think, like, the comparison between gay marriage and weed will actually work out, because, like, the, like, marriage is not something that, marriage is not really, like, marijuana. Marijuana is a commodity. Yeah, mar marijuana is great, and marriage sucks. Sorry, go on. Yeah, there's, like, major problems going on in Colorado because they can't keep their revenue in banks. Like, the people who are selling pot can't keep their revenue in banks because on the federal level, it's illegal. <laughs> well, so, they, Dennis they have these warehouses. Sorry, go on, I'm sorry. Um, so, they have these warehouses of weed money where they have to keep their weed money. And there's a number of other legal issues where, depending on who you run into, you could be arrested or you could not be arrested if, it, if it's like local state police. You're they're not going to arrest you for weed, but if it's like federal, you, you could be fucked. 
you know. So that's why I'm saying like we should fight for legalization on a federal level. Well, there's actually this brings me to my second article that I wanted to bring up, up here. Someone is doing that. Chuck Schumer. Oh, right. That is interesting. Oh, fuck him. So, let me finish. Here's the other article. Here's how it begins. Check this out. Politics isn't always red or blue. Lately, it's been green. This is NPR. Like, this is the same. Why is every, why is every article about this, like, start with something? Because none of fucking... smoke weed. <laughs> Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat, New York, plans to introduce legislation on Friday, 420, to decriminalize marijuana on the federal <laughs> level. Adding a high-profile advocate to the, in the effort to decriminalize, legalize, and normalize marijuana use in America. Um, if if smoking marijuana doesn't hurt anybody else, why shouldn't we allow people to do it and not make it criminal? Schumer told Vice News tonight on HBO in a Thursday interview uh, previewing his bill. To drive the point home, the point Schumer also agreed to sign a bong. Oh my lord! I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to say critical support, but like. At the same time, if it doesn't also include like letting all drug offenders out of jail, like it's it's basically just a concession. And there is a weed market to be opened up through federal legalization. Like mm-hmm. like Rosa was saying, how there's always money tied up that's probably not being invested because of or being even taxed because of like these weird federal, state, local law differentiations. So, you know. It's it's basically probably beneficial for like the marijuana industry to you know fight for federal like you know legalization because at this I, point I, like, I I will say though I think like Americans have not just culturally accepted weed but like multiple states have legalized it basically and like you, like pretty much everyone does it like it's it's such a common thing it's like drinking a beer almost. except for NPR writers. <laughs> well, and that's that's. I mean, that this actually is a pretty huge shift because, like, the Democrats will never stand up for anything. So if they if they feel like they could do this, um, I think I think really the ground has shifted in like any in a big fucking way. The, the California Democrats have had this on their platform for a few years, but this is this is something else. I mean, is this going to go anywhere? Does this have a chance uh, at all? I don't know. Like, Honestly, like I, I can't see. I, I like Democrats trying to. Say I like how. Oh, sorry. What are you saying? Um, I was saying I like how like NPR can have like a nice cheeky little article about Chuck Schumer saying that he wants to legalize weed and sign a bong just like a few days after he like went on a tirade about like Palestinian, like how there was no um civilians in Palestine and shit like that. Like you just Ooh. like you can go from. You can go from just straight up advocating the murder of c- peaceful protesters and civilians to just ah wacky weed guy. <laughs> he's he's the wacky weed politician. Well, it's, you know Hitler was born on four twenty. <laughs> I was gonna say Christ. that was also Hitler's birthday, so let's not forget. You know, weed leads to Eastern mysticism, which leads to irrational thinking, which leads to fascism, man. Like, <laughs> once, you start, once you start reading that Ram Dass shit, next thing you know, you're reading Julius Evola, and you're, you know, you're trying to ride the tiger, and your ketamine trips are just like you trying to, you know, you know move above modernity. Yeah, yeah. That that's why all the hippies people. became like weird fascists and cultists. Well, they, uh, they either became, you yeah, know, you had a lot of weird cults and shit. There's actually a documentary on Netflix about an interesting cult 
that I just finished watching called Wild Wild County. But, um, there's, like, yeah, there's all these cults, but, like, a lot of the hippies just became Reaganites. Yeah. Like, that seems to be, like, what Adam Curtis, like, said. Like, I mean, if Adam Curtis's interpretation is right, like, it seems like they took this idea of, like, personal liberation and just became, like, libertarians. Like, yeah, free markets are awesome because politicians can't be trusted and the market always, like, makes the right decision. And so then they just got on board of Reagan. Because, like, there's speeches by Reagan where he's like, oh, I'm so for freedom. I want to get government out of your life. Blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, if all you care about is, like, being able to do drugs and, like, be, like, you know, kind of, you know, do, like, stuff that's illegal and, like, you know, kind of on the fringes of society, like, that can be attractive to you and you can easily just get sucked up into that. God, what a shitty generation. Yeah. Anyway, anyway speaking, of, sh speaking of shitty people from that, just one more thing about, <coughs> shit, sorry. Just one more thing about how much the ground has shifted on this. In that same article, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell took a baby step in that direction. <coughs> shit, sorry. This is actually Kratom uh, coughing, not... Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Kratom in my throat. Wrong okay. So, take two. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell took a baby step in that direction last week by introducing legislation to permanently decriminalize hemp, a non-psychoactive byproduct of cannabis that has been a boom for Kentucky farmers in recent years. So, I think that's... I mean, that that's like... so if Because I remember, like... Shit. Like, fucking... 15 years ago, like, Ralph Nader was the only one talking about decriminalizing hemp, like, on a national political stage. So the Republicans are, like, pro-hemp now, and the Democrats are pro-weed legalization. I mean, you know, that's actually a pretty pretty, pretty big uh, political shift that's taking place. I mean, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, it's literally just a cultural shift. Like, yeah. once marijuana got popular, like, everyone just started doing it. And, like... It's just, if you weren't a complete square and, like, you weren't freaked out by weed, even if you didn't smoke it, you know, you just, like, accepted that, like, people smoke weed and, like, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, you, you do have those, like, you know, really stupid people who are like, oh, my God, all drugs are really bad. Like, weed really is just so awful and everyone lies about it, you know. Which, honestly, like, people do say a lot of stupid stuff about weed, but, like, that's besides the point. The point is, like, it's culturally accepted at this point. Like, the, the tie to hemp really, like, brings out the textile industry, like, interest behind banning cannabis because one, it's so funny. Like, so a draft of one of the founding documents of this country is written on hemp. And, like, uh, Washington was a hemp farmer. So like, if you roll it up and smoke it, will we get high? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we will. We'll get high on freedom. No, but more importantly, um, fittingly, completely trailed off. I forgot what I was going to say. Actually, I wanted to bring something up, which is like, we started talking about the Soviet Union earlier, and I kind of want to talk about it more because I'm a nerd on that stuff. Yeah. But like, mm -hmm. not the Gorbachev era, but like the actual revolutionary era where like, you know, everyone knows a story where, like, basically they stormed the Winter Palace and they had, like, all this wine in the cellar. And so, basically, like, the working classes of mom of Petrograd or whatever, like, they basically just, like, sacked, you know, the um, wine cellar and just got really, really fucking drunk. And um, it just kept going on for, like, a whole month until a group of anarcho-syndicalists actually, like, went in and started, like, shooting at them. 
and telling them that they had like get to get back to work and they were just indulging in like bourgeois decadence. And it's funny because it's not even Bolsheviks that did this. It was anarcho-syndicalists. But that, besides the point, like they were just you know they were part of the revolution at that time, and so like there was this like weird contradiction already from the beginning of the Soviet Union, and like with this you know at one point like you know Trump wanting to ban drugs and in the name of like making a sober working class, and the other hand believing in personal freedom and trying to have a more scientific like analysis of drugs and just accepting that it's part of reality. I had something I was going to say, but I totally forgot. I'm trying to think of it. Are we all just like stoner, like lapsing in, in brain knowledge right now? Yeah, like that was like a total bong rip take. Like, I feel that. I, 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 I love the meme bong rip communism. I, I kind of feel compelled to talk about Hegel. Go on. Yeah, how does Hegel relate to this shit? <laughs> I'm not high. I'm not high. All right, well, I am. We'll get high. Who, who actually is high right now? Who isn't? I think, I, think, I, think, I think Rose is the only one who isn't. Okay. Yeah. So what do you have to say about Hegel, Lexi? Okay, well. I think, like, one of the things that stands up in the, like, dialectics of nature corpus but it's something that undermines some other parts of dialectics of nature is that whole concept of the transference of i forget what the fuck it is transformation of quantity quantity to quality like yes. yeah the second law that the law, yeah like the, yeah. the idea that like at a certain point quantity transfers to quality you can like kind of apply this to like even nature or whatever. I was debating a liberal Democrat who is involved in city politics in Harlem, like casually debating over drugs and in a good argumentative fashion in the Socratic sense. Um, and he whipped out the term punctuated equilibrium to describe um, his approach to politics, because he didn't want to just say that he was an incrementalist. He felt like that wasn't good enough. So he reached towards this term that was basically created by what Stephen Jay Gould to render the second law of dialectics into evolutionary theory. I was kind of flabbergasted. I didn't really expect to hear that. I guess it's gotten memified somewhere. Well, it's it's true, though. Like, Stephen Jay Gould basically said, like, the three laws of dialectics, as pointed out by Engels, are, like, completely compatible with, like, his understanding of evolutionary theory. At least, like, maybe not as written, but in spirit, at least, like, do provide, like, some, like, value for understanding these phenomena, you know? And like I, I think, that's the one thing that's made me think like maybe there is like something that's dialectic shit. Like I do want Marxism to be as scientific as possible, but I think like there is something to this dialectics idea. I don't know. There are philosophers of science like Helena Sheehan, who was just on Alpha from Alpha to Omega. She listened to from Alpha to Omega. I got uh, her book, but I'm like overwhelmed by reading. But yes, I'm very interested in reading what she has to say on that. I mean. Just from reading the intro, which is as far as I got, was really good. Um, 
Sheenan like emphasizes <clears throat> about dialectics that like there is like a very specific sense in which these things are true and the thing that's super not true about it that's undermined by the second by the rousing success of the second law is that um <laughs> these laws hold everywhere and like on every level of reality the same laws hold which is such a weird undialectical thing to appear there like just by that own by their own by Hengel's by Engels' own logic, that doesn't end up making sense, especially when you spell out actual <clears throat> processes in the world that have been described as dialectical. And to be completely frank with you, I'm not really like comfortable with most people describing them as dialectical. Like when Helena Sheehan does it, like she's coming from a time when these kind of emergent, nonlinear, complex phenomena didn't really have much like that wasn't the focus of research especially like towards the 70s and 80s and and following games well, you had like this very like this method of of individualistic analysis and not a like something more like like what angles was i think getting at that laws, like laws of reality hold at every level of reality but it was like that for this individual rational choice stuff. And if anyone you know knows my like interests, it's not that I don't think rational choice stuff is valid or useful. It's just that it can be deceptive in th making you think that you have everything at your fingertips. And that's, I was supposed to talk about Hegel, but that's the bong rip, okay? Well, honestly, like I'd rather talk about that than Hegel. Because, like, I think that there is this about science, like, there's this idea that, you know, like you said, there's an individualistic methodology almost where, you know, the individual scientist, like, does rational calculations, and it's all based on processing quantity and equations. But the thing is, is that by the 70s and like, by the development of, like, systems theory as well, I think I've, that I'm not an expert on exactly the whole history of it. I imagine, you know, there's roots of it, Pat, before the 70s. But really, like, scientists themselves start to have to grapple with, like, the fact that this very positivistic, you know, purely quantitative methodology of understanding the world that's just purely based on, like, rational choice and game theory is really just too simplistic to understand the complexity of the whole world. So science itself starts to kind of take up ideas that are associated with dialectics. Like, punctuated equilibrium would be, like, the best example. And also basically saying, hey, maybe there is something in this dialectics of nature stuff. And, I mean, I'm not saying, like, you know, that stuff is true at face. What I'm saying is maybe there is, like, something that dialectics can help us understand about the multifaceted, you know, complex and social nature that, you know, the science occurs in, you know. I just don't see why we have to name it after like German metaphysics, like because the, this stuff exists. It can be described in a number of ways. Do we have to use nineteenth-century German metaphysics? We don't have to, but the name sounds cool. I mean, yeah, it's like we could think of something better. Like I prefer like the materialist conception of history personally. 
But like dialectics is cool word though. Materialism actually was not coined by Stalin, and like like dialectical materialism was actually coined by Dietzkin, who Marx and Engels called the philosopher of our movement. And like you can look at Dietzkin, I actually find him fascinating and love reading him. Yeah. And like there's moments of crankery almost, but there's there's brilliant insight in there. And so I think that you know the materialist conception of history combined with, you know, utilizing dialectical logic is basically the way to go. But I think the materialist conception of history needs to like look at the philosophy like needs to actually like take philosophy of science into account more and kind of enter into a like a dialogue. And the problem is that science has gone so far to the right that the left like doesn't really it's kinda of hard to do that. <laughs> so we went from talking about weed to like fucking uh, philosophy of science. Yeah, it's a dialectic of enlightenment, man. Honestly, I completely lost track of what we were talking about towards the end there. I had to read more about dialectics. Like The problem with that is that it's so often used on the left as just a form of like hand-waving. Like, no, man, you're not thinking dialectically. And so you just start to think that dialectics is just, like, some woo-woo bullshit, but... I don't know. Might be more to it. Anyway... If you want to support the show, you can send us some money via the Cash App. Dollar sign C L Tampa. One word. Or you can send us money through PayPal. Communist League of Tampa at gmail.com. Send us some of that money. We'll get to uh, getting better mics, better sound, maybe a more regular recording schedule, maybe episodes where we actually like read something or talk to some like some expert on some shit, and not just episodes where we get high and talk about weed, man. I don't know, or maybe you enjoyed this. I don't know. If you enjoyed this, don't send us any fucking money. Get some more of this. That's fine. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're probably broke anyway. I feel like people with money could afford, like, better entertainment than this. I'm broke, too. I'm not judging. You know, I don't want to... Far be it for me to leech off other pearls. But if somehow you've got money, you know, you've got your little niche, you got a little trust fund... You got some way to pull yourself out of the fucking pig pen and get to first class. How about throwing some money our way, huh? You don't have a soul anymore. That's gone if you had one to begin with. So you might as well make that count for something. Support your communists. Unless they're fucking, you know, Maoist LARPers or... Stalinist creeps. Don't support those people. Those people don't count.
All right. Until next time, keep your boots clean. Keep your bongs clean. Your feet out of the swamp and your head in the smoky, smoky revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Good night. I love you.